Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. If you were to ask me and say, what are the greatest chapters in the Bible? You ever, you ever seen some of the books on the greatest chapters of the Bible? Um, I, I would have to say, wow, Genesis 1. I'd have to say Isaiah 53. I mean, I, it's really hard to, hard to do this. But there's no question that one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, the one we're in right now, John chapter 3. This is the passage where... Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation and the Lord utters those wonderful words, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We're going to look at this passage and and today we're going to look at the whole message he gives. I'll start at verse 6 actually. I mean, I'll start actually at verse 1 and talk to you about some things. I want you to see Nicodemus. I want you to understand he's a Pharisee and what that means. Because the conversation going on right here is between Jesus explaining to a Pharisee the truth. And when you see all of that, what he says just begins to make, just fits right in line. You begin to see the whole message that Jesus gives. And then I want to see the whole thing, uh, because if I just go through it verse by verse, kind of real, real tight, we won't get the, the whole message. We won't hear him. Uh, I may go, I'm not promising I won't go back and, and go through this. <laughs> you know me, and I, I know him. Anyway, um, <laughs> But I want to hear the whole message today. And, and uh, my goodness, it's a, it's a powerful message. Telling a Pharisee, saving a Pharisee, because he will save this man. This, this Nicodemus, this Sanhedrin member, this, this Pharisee is going to come to Christ. And I believe, in fact, I'll tell you a little bit later, uh, he becomes a Christian, as does family. Praise the Lord. Father, we love you. And your word is life to us. It is your word that disciples us. We are not trying to just go to church. We have come to be discipled by the word of God and to worship you with our whole hearts and to love each other and be the body of Christ. And I pray right now, Lord, that you will just open your word, that you will grace me to speak it and that I'll get out of the way as much as possible and we will hear the truth of your word. I will hear it, we will hear it, and we will live. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. I want to ask you these questions as we begin. Were you ever a religious person who tried to earn God's favor? Let me see hands. How many of you have had that kind of religious history where you had to kind of come out of religion? Raise your hands high. Don't be ashamed of it. All right. Hallelujah. We can all all repent of that. (laughs) It's almost harder, isn't it? It's almost easier to come out of the world because your need is obvious. Those raised in the church sometimes and raised in all of that have a little, we can have a little more difficult time uh, coming to grips with it. Here's the second question. What's the difference between self-discipline and legalism? 
What's the difference between self-discipline and legalism? Name, name with me some, some self-discipline. What are some of the things we do that are, are disciplines, are spiritual disciplines in our life? What are some of the ones in your life? Soaping, yeah. Reading the Bible and the scripture application, observation, or whatever, observation, application, and prayer. I do that most days. What else? Worship. Prayer. Fasting. Can I, can I, are those, are, th- are those legalistic? You see, if you talk to a lot of Christians, they'll, you'll, you'll hear this business. Anytime someone says, well, I'm starting to, I do this discipline, they'll go, ask legalism. Is self-discipline legalism? Can it become legalistic? Ah. Yeah, there's a line there, isn't it? One person could do it legalistically. One person can go to church legalistically. Another person can go to church as a discipline and as a worship, which is the next thing I'm going to ask you. Do you see the difference? There's an attitudinal thing, and it's a hugely important understanding. Every one of us has to monitor our own heart. What's the difference between worship and legalism? Name some things that you could, be, you could do in worship that would become legalistic or just be worship. We mentioned, how about Sabbath keeping? Tithing. Tithing. Two things, come on, come on, wake up, join me. I'm waking up, you wake up. <laughs> Discipling people, yeah. Can we disciple someone legalistically because we ought to? And feel really good about ourselves. Can I do it out of, as a worshipful thing? I, know I give my life. I pour my life out because I love Jesus. Yes? How about, how about a Sabbath? Uh, can I keep a Sabbath? Take a day of the week where I just spend time uh, reading the word and sitting with the Lord uh, just out of sheer worship and love of him? Yes? How about can I do it because I ought to and it has to be on a certain day and if I don't do it, I'm in trouble? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's a load of that. You see the difference? I can worship. Or I can do something legalistically. I, I can do self-disciplines, which are important. Self-disciplines are fundamentally necessary for a successful life. But I can also turn it into a legalism. And I can do it and get self-righteous and proud and criticize everybody who doesn't do what I do. We'll start at, at uh, John 3 verses. I'm going to read 1 and 2. And then I'll, then I'll come back and read more in a minute. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. Notice he said we. He comes in the evening. He probably is coming... Uh, out, I believe Jesus is, is out on the hillside. He's out there in uh, the Mount of Olives. That phrase that says he wasn't trusting himself to men. I think what it meant is he didn't stay in the city. He didn't accept anyone's hospitality. He didn't, he didn't dare. He didn't dare be in there. I think that's the practical side of this. He's out there with his disciples camping somewhere in this huge olive grove on the east side of Jerusalem. So this Sanhedrin member... This will mean he's, uh, he's one of the 70. Remember, that's where it goes back to, where Moses, the spirit was poured out on the 70. So there's these 70 leaders. There's also, by the way, tribal leaders 
uh, of Israel. But that's a different group, but often, they often overlap and they often meet together. You got the high priests, you got the 70, and you got the tribal leaders of the various tribes also. And uh, he's a Sanhedrin member. So he's one of the 70. And as Jesus refers to him, he said, are you the, the teacher of Israel? So this guy is a very popular, very influential man. And he comes out at night. Probably they've got a campfire. They're sitting there and he comes and he sits down and he and Jesus have this dialogue. How do we know this, what took place? How do we know these words so carefully? Well, two people were there hearing it. One was John. He's sitting there too at the campfire listening to all this, but so is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I'll tell you in a minute. Nicodemus becomes a believer, as does his family. Hallelujah. Here we go. Most people fall into one of two categories. They're either trying to save themselves or they've realized that they can't and they need a savior. People are either pursuing God's justice or clinging to his mercy. They're either, they either expect to be rewarded or forgiven. And those two attitudes are so deeply different, they lie in such opposite directions, a person can't pursue both at the same time. No one can try to earn God's approval while they are receiving his mercy as a gift. It's just not possible. The heart must look one way or the other. And I admit there is a third option, which is some form of hopeless indifference. That person stops trying altogether and simply looks for ways to cope until death arrives. This is the saddest option of all. Some end up there because they've stopped believing eternal life exists. Others believe it exists but are convinced they've done something that prevents them from ever receiving it. The root problem in this third option is spiritual deception. The person is believing a lie which needs to be broken by prayer. That's why you prayed, by the way. Uh, does God want to save the person? Of course, you don't need to talk him into saving the person you just prayed for. Uh, but there is, the, the, uh, the Bible says that they are blinded by a, dis- a deception. People are blinded. I prayed for two. You made the comment, you know, you might not even like the person. Actually, I prayed for two people I don't like. Uh, but I have been called to pray for. And it's, it's quite the challenge. I, you know, I have to keep, yes, Jesus. Hallelujah. Yeah. But I, I loved that phrase that, that Frederick used. He said, it's harvest season. And that struck my heart. And I thought, okay, maybe we're going to see some breakthrough with these two individuals. Hallelujah. Praise God. The conversation that took place between Jesus and Nicodemus was about the first two categories. That night, a man who was sincerely trying to earn God's favor met a savior who offered him grace. Jesus placed in front of this Pharisee a choice. Would he stay on the path he was on or would he abandon it entirely and follow Jesus on a new path? And you and I need to listen carefully to what they were saying because what Jesus said applies to us today just as much as it did to Nicodemus. The choice placed in front of him is a choice each of us must make and continue to make. Did you see that? And continue to make. Which path will we choose? Because it's impossible to walk both at the same time. I'm going to just remind you one more time of that that statement in 
in um, John 1, or 3, verses 1 and 2. If I hadn't closed my Bible, I'd do it quickly. There was a man of the Pharisees. Say Pharisees. Pharisees. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. All right. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin and probably one of the most popular teachers in Israel. As he watched Jesus perform miracles and heard him speak, he became one of those who, quote, believed in his name. He was an example of a sincere but untransformed seeker. And as we listen to him, we can hear what he believed. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one is able to do these signs which you do unless God is with him. We can hear in this statement that he believed that God had sent Jesus as a teacher and that he was teaching truth. He also recognized that real power was at work through Jesus. And he was convinced that God was the source of that power. And because of what he believed, he longed to talk to Jesus privately. Yet if word got back to the high priest or those on the Sanhedrin who were hostile to Jesus, he would be pressed to renounce Jesus. And if he didn't, he would almost certainly be removed. He said, we know. Did you notice the we? There are, he's not the only one. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea, we know is going to come. And then who else? Probably Gamaliel. We don't, we don't know who all's on that council. These aren't, these aren't bad people. In many cases, they're the, best, they're the best, most passionate believers in Israel. And they said, we're watching this, and the honest ones among us, you've got to be from God. Nobody can do that stuff. And, 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 the, and even if you stand there with integrity and watch the healing or watch the deliverance, you can feel the love of God. I heard Jack Hayford say one time, the love of God is the power. You can't discern between the power of God and the love of God. When the power is there, the love is there. Have you noticed that? That great love of the Lord. Anyone who's an honest person can sense that love. One guy was telling me this last night. He said, I went to this house and and the family says, all of our cats hate people. So just get used to it. And he said, and, I, and I, I sat down and, I, and I, I forget what the situation was. He was worshiping. And the cats came and they got all over him and started purring and just going, mm. And he said, I thought you said your cats hated people, you know. And, and he said, what they were feeling was, what? The love of the Lord. Your animals feel the love of the Lord. Anyone, unbelievers feel it. When the real power is there. Now, sit in rows and have a little religious event? No. Worship into the presence. You know, that's why we push you into the presence in worship. This is not a small matter, this worship thing. You must learn to worship. It's your warfare. It's your healing. Why do, we, why do you, you know, if you don't like the worship, I set the worship here. And I set the kind of environment you invite. And I, I make you rise up and praise God. Because I need to. If you don't, and you do, <laughs> I got to. I cannot minister flat-footed. I cannot go through life without breaking through. Someone's got to get me up and make me praise because I'm a whiner. <laughs> I say it funny, but I mean every word of it. You understand? You praise in. You get strong. You push in. And when, the, when you push in like that, the, that sweet love of the Lord... The power and the love are indistinguishable. He says, we, 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 we on the Sanhedrin, the ones who really know the Lord, we know you're from God. 
We can see this. John mentions that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And this is an important piece of information for us to understand the dialogue which took place that night. Because everything Jesus said challenged the basic assumptions of Phariseeism. It was a religious movement focused on maintaining God's favor by meticulously obeying the commands of the law. Now, notice I put the word Torah there. Let me, let me just bring this out a second. When, when we, in most translations now, we'll, whenever they, we have that word Torah, we'll say law. And in our minds, law is a bad thing. It's mean, law. And then we think of the Old Testament as law. And the New Testament is grace. It's absolutely stupid. That is not the way it is. There's grace all the way through. No one, no one has ever been saved other than by faith. Ever. Nor did God ever try to make them. He took a man, Abraham, who walked with him in faith and became righteous by faith. And 24 years later, circumcised him. That's the beginning of the law. The word Torah actually is the instruction, the teaching. It's what a father or mother will do with their children. Is that law? Well, it can be. I'm teaching you. So when you see this, these, these men and women who are pressing in on God like this are trying to obey the teachings of God. That's a good thing. Here we go. But Jesus told Nicodemus that God's favor would be given to those who place their faith in him. Do you see that in him? Who place their faith in him. He didn't come teaching another way, a new religion. He said, believe in me. Their discussion centered around the same issue Paul addressed in his letter to the Romans, where he contrasts those who pursue a law of righteousness with those who receive the righteousness which is by faith. The origin of the religious movement called Pharisees is uncertain. Even the meaning of the name itself is disputed largely, I think, because it appears to have originally meant Persian. And to some students of the Bible, that seems illogical. But I think we observe the root of this word being used in the book of Daniel when he interpreted the handwriting on the wall. He saw there the words, you farsen, say you farsen. And Perez. Remember this? This is Belshazzar. He's the last Babylonian king. Within hours, he's going to be conquered by the, by the Medes and the Persians. And he's, they're going to come in through the, in the night through the, through the walls somehow. And he's got this great feast. And what he's done is he's taken the, the actual utensils out of, that were brought from Jerusalem from the te- temple. And he's drinking and having a, an orgy kind of thing. With the, with the very goblets and all of the temple. At that point, a hand comes and it writes on the wall. And it writes these words. Meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. Remember that? Calls in Daniel. He says, tell me what it means. I'll give you half my kingdom. And Daniel says, no, thank you. <laughs> it's about uh, 10 more minutes. Uh, um, Really was I, I don't even know. Anyway, so he says, "What does it mean?" And he says, "Meaning, me, you've been you've been weighed in the balances and you found wanting." And then he says, "And your kingdom has been divided, 
Take it, and given and Peres, given to the Persians, given to the Persians. He saw the words Euphorson and Peres, which are the plural and singular form of the word for the people of Persia. That ancient name can still be heard in the word Farsi. Does anyone recognize that word? Yeah, that's the, it's one of the major languages of, of, of uh, Iran. Say Farsi. Now say Pharisee. Pharisee. Ah. The problem some have in connecting the term Pharisee to Persia is in understanding why anyone would use the term Persians for a religious group in Israel. But we need only think back to Israel's history to see a possible connection. The Babylonian and then Persian exile was God's discipline of Judah and Jerusalem for disregarding his law. During those years, the temple lay in ruins and all but the poorest had been taken as captives to Mesopotamia. The restoration of the nation began when some of these exiled Jews came home under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And from that time onward, the school of thought begun by Ezra continued to influence the formation of Judaism. Uh, I'll say it again in a second, but let me tell you, Ezra is a huge figure in Jewish history, more than I realized. The, the Jewish tradition and, and, and writings say this about him, that when, when, when they were uh, in Babylon, and you have really all the top leadership of Israel has, has gone to Babylon, and they thrived there in those 70 years. They've gone up to a huge numbers of people, and they've prospered. In fact, when the, when the, when the, when the king uh, releases them and says, you can go back, about 50,000 did. <laughs> Everybody else goes, like it here. And so you ended up with an entire school of Judaism in Babylon and, and in that, that whole area. But at that time, the books of the Bible were just scattered. There was one over here and one over here and one over here and one over here. And no one had the whole Bible. And they, in fact, nobody was copying it. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was just sort of getting old on these old scrolls. And Ezra, a prophet of God and a priest, begins to be moved to the Lord. He loved the Bible. He loved the word of God. So he would go around and he'd find these scrolls. And then he personally would begin to copy them by hand. What are those called? What, when you copy by hand, what are you called? A scribe. You notice the scribes and the Pharisees are always together. He began to copy these scrolls. And then he taught other men to do the same, to love the word and to copy it. And so he starts collecting all the books of the Bible and getting them copied and putting together one great volume of everything of the Old Testament except the books that hadn't been written yet and the ones maybe he hadn't written yet. He probably wrote Chronicles, the first First two chronicles, he wrote Ezra, I think. And there's Nehemiah, there's Malachi, and I'm missing something maybe. But, but for the most part, you have the whole body of it. When he came back from Persia, these Persian Jews, now come back from Persia to this broken the city's in rubble, uh, the, the thing's a mess. Uh, Nehemiah has come, or will come and, 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 and build a wall. I mean, he, they'll get the wall, they'll get the temple, that kind of stuff. He brings with him the Bible. He brings the scripture, the scroll. He has it. And the great revival is that he gathers the entire nation at one point. You see it in uh, Nehemiah 8. It's, oh, the, whole, the whole people now come. And he stands on this great podium and he begins to read the whole uh, Bible. 
And he has echoing points, people who will then echo what he reads so you can hear. And all the people stand and hear the reading of the word of God, in many cases, for the first time. It's been lost. Ezra began really Judaism. This is where the synagogue movement came out of. And it was his followers and his people who believed this. They said this, never again. We lost our nation. We lost the blessing. We lost protection by disregarding the law of God. Never again. And so they began to write the word and copy the word and make sure everybody had it. Every synagogue had, had, had the Torah and maybe other, other volumes. They began, to, they began to encourage the reading of the word. So every week they're reading and they're memorizing the word. And then they're saying, now we're going to obey it all. Even the little stuff that doesn't seem significant. We're going to obey it all so that the Lord will bless us and protect us and we will never again be carried off into exile. Is that a wrong attitude? It is not. It is a good attitude. It's worshipful and it's self-disciplined, isn't it? Can it cross into legalism? Yeah. His goal was to restore God's blessing and protective hand and to prevent anything like the exile from ever happening again. I think he and those scribes and teachers he brought with him from Persia and later on the movement itself, which was based on his teaching, came to be called by the nickname the Persians, the Pharisees. With this in mind, he, we can easily see why conflict arose between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. Nowhere are the reasons for that conflict expressed more clearly than in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus, he, was endangering their national existence from their point of view. That's why we, as we listen to this conversation, we'll hear Jesus explain to this Pharisee the true path to God's salvation. Now, let's go back. Most of us have never heard anyone say anything good about a Pharisee. Would you agree? Uh, we don't know who they are or where they came from, but they're bad people is what we know. It seems no one is able to ever explain to us who they were, or, but they're quite sure they were hypocrites uh, who made everyone else's life miserable by trying to force them to keep the requirements found in their list of religious rules. And undoubtedly, there were a lot of them who did exactly that. We can hear it in the way Jesus warned them. Look with me at Luke 11 for a second. This is where a lot of the definition of Phariseeism comes from, is his, his, his addressing them right here. Jesus was constantly calling people into relationship, and the Pharisees are saying, no, no, you got to keep the law, or we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. And so here's Jesus, and his, if his disciples pick wheat on the, on, on, on the Sabbath, or if, he, or if he heals somebody, they're all worried that they'll lose God's favor. It's a fear-driven thing, isn't it? So listen to Jesus, what he, what he says here. We're looking at verse 37. When he had spoken of Pharisee, here we go, asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at table. And when the Pharisees saw it, they were surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So they're all upset he didn't wash his hands. Ceremonially, you got to pour the water over this way, you pour the water over this way. It's a way of ceremonially cleaning your hands. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and, the, and, a, and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who make the outside also make the inside 
but give that which is within as charity and then all things are clean for you. Look, here's the issue with legalism. I can do outward religious behaviors. If I'm really in earnest, I can get this down. If I have to go to church on a certain day, I can do it. If I have to read a certain amount of this, I can do it. If, I, if it has to be a certain this or a certain that or keep this or light this or trim this or wear this or have tassels, or, I can do stuff like that. That's what Paul says when he says, when it came to the law, I was blameless. But he also is really clear. This is what he's explaining in, in Romans 7. He says, I can do the outward religious behaviors of the law. I can get that down and I can do it. But he said, the problem comes inside me. Because the law doesn't just speak to my outward behaviors, does it? It, it also asks me to love my neighbor, be kind, love God with all my heart. Uh, it asks me to not covet. It, tell, it asks me not to lust. Okay, so I can, I can wear tassels and cut my beard, or not, but I can't stop things that are inside. Can you? No, you can't. The answer is no. <laughs> and so I can, no, you can't. Try it. See, and this, this was the issue that, that brought Paul to the realization, you can't keep the law. You can't do it. All the law can do is show you you need mercy. And therefore, the law is a tutor which leads you to Christ, to God's grace. If a person is honest, the law will frustrate them until they call on God for his chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy. Not make another list of rules. See, what you do when you get legalistic is you begin to focus on the ones you can keep and ignore the things you can't. So here's Jesus talking to this group of people going, oh, so I didn't wash my hands right. Big deal. But you aren't generous with the poor. You aren't kind. You aren't loving. You're taking money from the widows. You're doing all this garbage. Inside you're rotten, but you wash your hands just right. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Can you see the clash? Oh, boy. Oh boy. He says, you're focusing on the outward, you're ignoring the inward. And the inward's what really matters to God. Okay. Um, let's, let's go back to our text. Well, no, no, no. Just a few more. Verse 42 there. Look at that. Woe to you Pharisees, you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. You know, so in other words, when they have a little herb garden by the, by the back door and they pick a, off the mint plant, if they pick 10 leaves, they go to tithe one. Okay, so you tithe the mint leaf. Good. Meanwhile, you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things you should have done. I'm not, he says, I'm not against your tithing for the right reasons, but quit ignoring the inward, and then he, he goes on. But if we realize that this religious movement probably began with Ezra's godly reforms, we'll hear what Jesus was saying more accurately. He wasn't condemning people for trying to carefully obey God's word. His criticism was directed squarely at their lack of honesty in admitting that they had failed. Their hypocrisy was that they pretended they hadn't failed. And then that pride hardened their hearts. 
If they had been honest with themselves, their failure would have driven them to seek God's mercy. Just like David did when he failed so badly. He didn't come up with a new list of rules and try harder. He turned in faith to God's loving kindness. Say loving kindness. That's that word chesed. It means promised love. I promise to love you. When a couple stands in front of, the, of, of a, a gathering and before the Lord promises their vows to one another in a wedding, that is chesed. They are swearing to one another before God to love each other. God has sworn to love us. And David knows that. So, so when, when Saul sins, he tries to get Samuel to, to just sort of put a veneer on it, make everybody think everything's fine, and he just keeps going. When, and he gets, he gets crazy, he gets drunk, he gets violent. When Jesus, pardon me, when David, when David sins, what does he do? He goes before the Lord. And he's, when he's finally convicted by the prophet, he goes before the Lord. And this is part of what he says. I want you to read it out loud with me. It's from Psalm 51. Here we go. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, if all you wanted from me, because what did he do? He had killed a man, had a man murdered, uh, basically on a contract, and, and had taken his wife. And he says, if, if I could just offer you another bull or something, go into the, the, the temple, or, the, or the, they didn't have a temple, or, or the tabernacle yet, but if I, could, if I could sacrifice before you and do stuff like that and that'd make you happy, I'd do it. He says, that won't make you happy. It isn't some outward religious stuff. You want me to change in here. You want me to see my sin and come before you with a true contrite, convicted heart. Amen? See, David got it. That's why he got mercy. That's why, that's why he was such a great, great man. David didn't respond to his failures by promising God he'd try to be, be a better man in the future, though he would become one. He called on God for grace. Now let's go back to John 3. And I'm going to pick up at verse 6. And I will read down to verse 21. We are by that campfire. And Nicodemus has come out. We saw Jesus say, I, unless you are born from above, you must be born of water and the spirit. Remember all of that? All right, now we pick up at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is is spirit. Isn't that fabulous? That which is born of the flesh. In other words, anything your flesh does produces nothing more than flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, that which the spirit does, that's which the spirit initiates, the spirit accomplishes, is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of what we know. Notice the we. Who's the we? 
me and the Father, yeah. And we, and we testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Remember, we saw that term, son of man, didn't we, before? It's a term for the Messiah. It's, I, there you go. That's right out of Daniel 7. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. For, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Why don't you read verse 16 out loud with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world. If you'd like to read out loud with me, the writer than the rest, is, you go right ahead. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. All right. Two paths. This is not an Old Testament, New Testament issue. The choice people make in how they approach God is as old as time. There have always been two paths. People have always called on the Lord for mercy or tried to earn his favor. How far back does it go? How far back can you think of somebody who called on God for his mercy? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Seth. You, Cain and Abel is really an example of this, aren't they? You've got one who offers a, 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 a lamb or something, and you've got another who brought his vegetables, his work, to please God, to give him a gift. This one called on God for mercy. When, 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 uh, when, when, Seth, when, when it says from that point on, men begin to call on the name of the Lord. What they did is pile up rocks, stick this goat or this lamb on the thing, lay their hands on it, confess their sins, kill the thing, and then burn it before the Lord. And as the smoke went up like prayer, it would call on God going, uh, it, this, I should have died. This thing died in my place. Have mercy on me, O God. You see it? Very fundamental concept. They began to call on the name of the Lord for mercy. For mercy. Either a person tries to earn God's approval or they admit they can't and call on him for mercy. This is, a, this is what Jesus explained to Nicodemus. Basically, this was what I think he said. Now, this is my paraphrase of this, those verses we just read. Jesus speaking, verse six, no amount of human effort can produce this inner miracle. I call being born from above or enable a person to do the works that please God. 
Human effort produces human results, which do not please him. The things that please God must be produced by his spirit. What does that say to a Pharisee who is now trying to please God by doing these things? He's saying, you're doing it in the flesh. Verse seven, so don't be surprised when I tell you God must change your heart and fill you with his Holy Spirit. Verse eight, because when that happens, he is able to guide you and do his works through you instead of you trying to guide yourself by the rules of the law. God wants people who are moved by the spirit, just like the wind blows the leaves of a tree. You can't see either the wind or the spirit, but you can see the effect they have on things. What I'm inviting you to is a living relationship with God in which he will guide and empower you. Verse nine, Nicodemus did not understand. So he asked, how can such things be possible? Verse 10, Jesus replied by asking him, how can you be the, a teacher of the Bible and not have seen these promises that I'm talking about? Verses 11 through 13. Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, I am not simply another rabbi trying to teach people how to obey the law of Moses. I am the Messiah. That's when he says, son of man. And what I am talking to you about is not a matter for debate. I didn't think these things up. I actually, they, I actually existed in heaven before I came to earth as a man. So I am reporting to you things I have seen and heard from the father himself. Do you see that? I mean, any, next time someone says Jesus never claimed to be God, just go, huh? You know, <laughs> you know read the Bible once, okay? And, and if you, <laughs> if you can't understand what I'm saying, when I use these common earthly illustrations, you certainly wouldn't be able to understand if I told you what I know in a straightforward way. Verses 14 and 15. My assignment from the Father at this point in human history is not to set up a glorious kingdom on earth, but to die. There are many symbols of the law in the law of Moses, which God placed there to teach Israel that the Messiah would have to die and be resurrected before setting up his kingdom. Let me stop there. I'm going to tell you the one about the, the serpent lifted on a pole. But what are some of the others? Help me. Where has God placed in the law of Moses, the first five books, where in the law of Moses did God place symbols that taught Israel the Messiah would have to die? Passover. Jesus totally saw himself as the Passover lamb without question. Another. How about Genesis 3? The seed of the woman will crush the... Listen to that. Will crush the serpent's head. What was Moses to lift up on that pole? A symbol of a dead snake. There's another. Scapegoat. Your hands, pray over this poor thing, lead it out in the wilderness, and it bears the sins of the nation away. He's the scapegoat. Anything else? Striking the rock. Striking the rock. I'll be struck once. Moses' great sin was he struck him twice. You don't strike Messiah twice. You speak to him, and he pours out the second time. You strike him once, though, for the nation that might have living water. Oh, isn't it? It just goes on and on. Oh boy, thank you. John, uh, Genesis 22. I mean, what a strange story. Take your son, 
take him up here on Mount Moriah and, and kill the boy. <laughs> kill your only son. And he holds that knife up. His hand is, 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 is called, hold your hand, Abraham. And he looks up and what does he see? A ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And then he names the place Jehovah Jireh. For in the mountain of the Lord, a sacrifice, an offering will be offered. You won't offer your son, I'll offer mine. Oh boy, it's just full, isn't it? So he says to, he says to Nicodemus, how can you be the teacher of Israel and not get any of this? It's a genuine question. How'd you miss it, bud? Yeah. Okay, one example of, uh, is when Moses made a bronze serpent and held it up on a pole while people had been bitten by venomous snakes that were dying all around him. That moment was a picture of what was going, he says, that moment was a picture of what's going to happen to me, says Jesus. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross, just like that snake was lifted up on a pole. And when Jesus, people see my cross and believe in me, they too will be saved from the power of death. Only now, they will be saved from eternal death. So, as he's standing there, Late Friday afternoon, and he watches Jesus lifted up on this thing like a serpent on a pole. He's had this conversation. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. I have to do this. What can Nicodemus look at going, all right, there you are. Okay, and he comes out, and what did he do? He, he and Joseph of Arimathea went out. He broke his cover, came out, lost everything, and buried Jesus. By the way, John's the only one that mentions Nicodemus shows up. The other gospels just to tell you about Joseph of Arimathea. But John, because of this important moment, John says, oh no, come on, you didn't finish the story for heaven's sakes. Because I was there. And, 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 and um, by the way, I, I said I'd, I'd tell you some of this. There is actually in the Targums, in the Jewish writings... There is actually record of a, of a Nicodemus whose daughter became a Christian, a follower of, of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a very wealthy woman and lost everything because she followed him. Does that sound familiar? Is that the book of Acts? Is that why Paul was taking a collection and an offering for all the saints who lost everything to follow him? Not only did he, but his daughter apparently also became a fine Christian. Hallelujah. Verses 16 and 17. The reason for all of this is that God loves people, all people. And he wants to save them, says Jesus, not condemn them. That's who he is. So he created a way that it would be possible to save non-Jews as well as Jews. Remember, we're talking to a Pharisee who thinks he's got a tithe mint and coming and, and got to have all the tassels right. All anyone has to do is believe in me. Believe that I am God's only begotten son. That he sent me to die for the whole world. That he wants to save, he wants to save people, not judge them. All who look to me with such faith will be saved. They will be born from above. They will be changed inside. They will be led and empowered by the unseen spirit. And God will give them eternal life. But not as a reward for their works. 
This is why I'm here. I came to rescue people, not judge them. Verse 18, everybody needs a savior. Nobody is good enough on their own. Unless people receive grace, they will be judged. There is only one savior. God has only has one son, me. No one else could die for you. Look at the verse I just took that from, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who, do, he who does not believe in him has, did you see it? Has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You're already in trouble. We are already full of sin. We are already alienated from God. We need a savior. Jesus says, and that's what I've come for. And no, they don't have to tithe mint and cumin. No, they don't have to go to church on a certain day. All people have to do is believe that I'm the son of God and see what I've done for them on the cross and they will be saved. I came to save, not condemn. When people meet me or hear about what I've done, verses 19 to 20, for them on the cross, who they are inside will be exposed. Did you see it? When the light comes into the world, people react. Some people are looking for God. They want to know him. They sincerely are trying to please him. So when they understand the truth about me, they come to me. Others keep their distance because they don't want God to tell them to stop doing things they enjoy doing. They feel no need for a savior. Verse 21, the person who wants to please God and is honest with him, he who comes to the light, Remember that? Sooner or later will recognize that their best efforts have failed. They need his mercy. They need a savior. They'll understand why I had to die. They'll know that they'll know they should die. So my cross will make sense to them. This is the defining factor. The person who is honest with themselves knows they're not good enough. The person who does not know that is in some kind of self-denial, some sort of self-deception, and, and probably deceiving others. You're playing a game. Anyone who's honest with the, with the standards of God and looks at yourself and looks at what you're doing realizes, I am not doing that. And there's a sense of, uh, that, God, you should cast me away. I should perish. So when I see his son lifted up and I see his son perishing, I understand why. You're dying in my place. You took my place. The person who doesn't see their sin doesn't understand. We, our heart decides this. And they'll know that all good things come from God. Did you see that last line? That their deeds may be manifest as having been wrought, worked in God. What does that mean? And they'll know that all good things come from God. So they'll humbly acknowledge that whatever they did in their lives that was good was actually something he did through them. They won't take credit for anything. When that young ruler came to Jesus and he called him good, good, uh, good teacher, good rabbi, Jesus said, just stopped him in his spot. And he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Now, is Jesus good? Yes, but he didn't, the kid didn't know it. This young man is flattering him. He's coming up thinking he's a rabbi, saying, good, good teacher, good master. Jesus says, how dare you call a man good? There is none good but who? 
All good things come from him, people. That which you do, that which I do, that is good, has come through him and because of him. Not, it's not us. The source of goodness, of life, is not in us. We can echo it. We can reflect it. We can let it pass through us. Hallelujah, we should. But we aren't the source. And a man or woman who's honest with themselves realizes, I didn't earn God's favor by doing this and this and this. They'll know that. I needed, a, I needed mercy. I needed to die and he died for me. But I also know that the good things in my life were something God did through me. You hear the humility of it? You hear the honest heart of it. Paul's gospel. Who does this sound like? Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? So that's where he got his gospel. He actually understood Jesus. Go figure. Like Nicodemus, Paul was a Pharisee who had tried as hard as he could to earn God's favor. But when he first heard about the cross, it made him angry, if you recall, because he was still too proud to admit that he needed mercy. That came later. And then Paul built his life on these very truths. He knew the danger of trying to earn God's favor, and he warned us that we must not let even a little bit of self-righteousness creep back in. Listen, and why don't you read this with me? It's from Romans 9. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Nobody who trusts in Jesus properly is hoping that they can earn something through the law. They know they can't. This is a big deal. It is not something that, yeah, I pray, I believe in Jesus. So do a whole lot of legalists. So do a whole lot of legalists. And there's, there are forces and trends right now that you need to be doing this. You need to go to church on a certain day and you need to be eating this and not eating this and all kinds of garbage. It's out there and it's being pushed and, it's being, and they'll quote scripture and they'll say, look, he said it's an eternal commandment. It does. It says unto the ages. But of course, we're in another age now. And they'll quote scripture at you. In Paul's time, he would go and he'd preach this gospel. People get saved. People get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after he left, there were, the, there were Jewish teachers that would follow him around, or Jewish sort of Christians, sort of t- kind of thing. And they'd come back and they'd start quoting this stuff at the people. You need to be circumcised. That, that was particularly the, one of the things they wanted him to do. You Look at Abraham, the commandment says that all your offspring must be, your male offspring must be circumcised uh, to have me in the covenant. Do you want your children in the covenant? Yes. Well, then you better circumcise them. And he's coming back through getting those Christians to do the circumcision. Is circumcision wrong? No. Can it be used legalistically? Go with me to Galatians 5 one second. I just want you to see what Paul says to this. 
This, he's, he's really strong on it. It's, it's, and this makes the point in, indisputably. I'll start at verse one there just for a second. Galatians 5 verse 1, for it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Notice you can waffle. You can slide back into this. Once believing in Jesus doesn't mean you always believe in Jesus and trust him alone. You can go back into legalism. It can come back into our hearts and begin to compromise us. Paul says, I say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And again, I testify to every man who receives circumcision. If you're going to do this, if you're coming back under the Jewish law, you have to keep it all. You can't pick and choose. You can't have one and ignore the others. You're going to do one, you do it all. In or out. All or nothing. Do you hear this? You have been, this is horrific. Look at verse 4. I didn't write it, he did. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. No, once saved, always saved is not true. You, as long as you're in faith in Christ, yes. But you can't do both. You can't earn your righteousness a little bit and trust Jesus a little bit. You either trust him completely. You understand nothing of your flesh can produce the righteousness of God. It never has. Abraham was saved how? By faith. 24 years before he was circumcised. 24 years before he was circumcised. No, you don't have to be circumcised to go to heaven or be in the covenant. You have to have the faith of Abraham. You follow this? Paul says, you want to you get back into that deal of earning your righteousness? Don't pick one law. You got them all, sweetie. You want, them, we want one? You get the whole bundle, 653 or whatever there are. You got to keep them all and perfectly. How you doing? You want that load? He says, but there's something about the human heart. It's just what I said in the introduction. You can't go one direction and the other at the same time. I can't trust my works. I can't let this creep back in. And I can't trust Jesus entirely as my righteousness at the same time. If I stop trusting him to trust this, I have now moved out of grace. The faith in Christ is not there. It's a very serious matter. Now let's go back. He knew from his own painful experience that a person can't trust their own good works and God's mercy at the same time. It's either one or the other, and it only takes a trace of trusting ourselves to drive out our dependence on the cross of Jesus. Now look at the questions again. What's the difference between self-discipline and legalism? Can I keep a Sabbath and do it as a discipline, as something that I find very helpful in my life in drawing with the Lord? Can I do that? I do. I, I, I move the day around occasionally. Mine isn't Saturday. Is that okay? It's, it's Monday. And I'll, 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 I'll sit with the Lord I generally, I don't shop on Mondays to speak of. I mean, I, I will if I suddenly have to for some reason. I don't go out shopping. I sit, I drink tea, talk to my wife, and talk to the Lord. I pray, I read, and I have a, I have a time with the Lord. Is that okay? Do I think I've earned anything? Why do I do it? I do it because I'm, I'm dry, I'm tired, and I'm grumpy on Mondays, and I, and I need Jesus, and, I, and it's a discipline for me. Is that okay? Is it, am I legalistic? 
Could I make it legalistic? Oh, honey, could I ever? I read my Bible virtually every morning. I, I, I do it because I have morning mind. I wake up and I'm, I, I'm by nature on the negative. You know? I, I got I to get in the word and read till I'm happy. I need, I need a promise. I need to speak to me. Am I legalistic? Am I self-disciplined? You see the difference? Can, you can keep holidays. You can keep things. You can do things. You can observe things. If it's an act of worship really an act of worship and that's all it is to you just a great vehicle to tell Jesus you love him wonderful if you do it to earn something and if you you and you guys who do it are better than us guys who don't you are creeping over and I'm just telling you it's death it's not a small matter it isn't a matter of style you you better check your conscience really deep because Paul says the minute I cross into legalism, I have to keep the whole law. And the minute I'm in there, I have fallen from grace. God knows my heart is now corrupted and I'm not trusting his son alone. Aren't we grateful for the gospel? This is what Jesus told a Pharisee by a campfire on the hill in the Mount of Olives. And dear Nicodemus, in time, when he saw him raised up like a serpent on a pole, followed his Lord. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, we ask you now, wherever in our hearts that legalistic tendency comes, where we begin to do things and feel it makes us better than others. Whenever we do something and we feel that if we don't, a fear rises that you'll be angry and punish us. Whenever we get in there and begin to trust those things, oh God have mercy. Show us that right now. Just, I'm going to take just a, a moment of quiet. Holy Spirit, just bring to me, bring to us, any area where we have come and begun to become legalistic where we've, we've allowed that thing to creep in. Just show us this, Lord, for we offer it before you today. We reject it. We receive self-disciplines. We receive acts of worship and various forms of worship. All of those things are lovely and beautiful. And when done with the right conscience are, 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 are sweet to you. They're pleasing. But oh, when we do them for the wrong reason, they stink before you. They become awful. Oh, God, the flesh produces flesh. It's the spirit who leads us who produces things of the spirit. Awaken our conscience. Awaken our discernment. Dear spirit, counsel us and guide us that we would walk in faith in Christ alone. Say in Christ alone. I trust in nothing but Christ alone. Would you say it? He alone is my righteousness. And I love him. I believe in him. I see him lifted up on the cross, dying for me, dying where I should die, that I might be forgiven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, 
but have everlasting life. I believe. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.